Hi, ladies. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I am part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I love being at Women in the Word. So thank you all for being here as well. It is a great place to be as we finish up our semester this week and next week with this incredible book of James. You know, a a couple of weeks ago, there was a tragic story in the news. Uh, It made me so sad as I read it. There was a North Carolina dad who was killed as he drove his car off a road into a creek bed and drowned because a bridge was missing. The bridge had actually collapsed years before on a private country road and had never been rebuilt. And this dad was simply following his GPS down this road in the dark trying to get home after his nine-year-old daughter's birthday party. There was no barrier on this road that his GPS led him down. There was no warning sign that the bridge was out. So when the road ended and he was in the dark, he simply plunged off the end of the road into this creek and drowned. And as I read that story, it was um, really a, a great picture to me of how important warnings are in our lives today. As Dr. Murphy said this last Sunday, if you heard his great sermon at Christ Chapel on Sunday, Dr. Murphy said, warnings are for our benefit. And that's the truth. They are for our benefit. And so many things in our lives come with warnings. Our medications come with warnings. Plastic bags come with warnings. My furniture now comes with warnings. A tipping hazard. Everything has to be secured. And most highway entrance ramps come with this big red sign that says, wrong way. Wrong way. And I think this wrong way sign is what warnings should be in our life. They should be big and bold, keeping us from harm. So as we continue with our author James today in chapter 5, what we see James really do today is hold up a big red wrong way sign to his wealthy readers as well. So let's take a look at that warning sign, that big red wrong way together beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, as he starts out chapter 5 here, there is some uncertainty as to whether James is simply targeting uh, believing wealthy people who are being unfaithful, very poor stewards with their wealth, or whether he's including the bigger picture of the wealthy class as a whole. Regardless, we know James is writing to believers, even if he's including some unbelievers in there as well. But if he's speaking to his wealthy believers here, as he's speaking to these unfaithful wealthy believers, he's actually giving them what's probably the harshest condemnation of money love in the entire New Testament. As followers of Jesus, He warns them that their money may bring temporary happiness, but eventually, what's going to happen? It is going to bring distress and misery. And there are at least two possible reasons as we look at his warning here. He uh, predicts distress and misery 
um, that they will weep and wail, as James predicts here. One reason for their future misery may be that they will eventually realize that all the money in the world cannot protect them. It can't keep them from life's pain. It can't keep them from distress and uncertainty. And it certainly will never protect them from death. One day, their money is going to let them down. And when that happens, they are going to let out a wail. Another possible reason that James is predicting their misery here is they may eventually recognize their sin and the judgment that it is going to bring into their lives as believers. Their eyes may eventually be open to their greed, which has led them away from their God and into the sin of making money their God. Now, for the people of faith that James is talking to here, these words, this warning, this big red sign, wrong way, it should be a wake-up call. It is a prophetic warning for them to turn their hearts away from the love of money and back to the God that loves them so profoundly. Now, even though James is describing wailing and howling here, he's not talking about loss of salvation for these unfaithful, wealthy believers, even if they fall into the sin of money worship. But he is talking about the fact that judgment will come with a loss of rewards in this life and a loss of rewards in their next life because of their love of money. In this life, if what you do is chase material wealth and cling to your possession, what's it going to do? It's going to rob you of the closeness that you could have had with the Lord your God as you live this life. It's going to reward you from the satisfaction. It's going to remove you from the satisfaction of clinging to God alone and the joy of doing his work. It can also lead you, money love can lead you into the sin of pride, false sense of security, and certainly a desire to control others and to control your world. In the next life, money love is going to... Re- is, sorry, I keep stumbling over that word, don't you? In the next life, money love will rob you of the eternal rewards that Jesus has for each of us in his kingdom as we use our resources wisely for his kingdom purposes. Now, Paul says to Timothy that money itself is never the issue, and that's the truth here. It is the love of money that is going to bring believers the misery that James warns of here. Look at 1 Timothy 6.10 on your verse sheet. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That certainly sounds like it will come with wailing and howling, doesn't it? Um, Okay, let's keep reading. Look at verses 2 and 3 together. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. How many of you have ever watched that TV show, Hoarders? Have any of you ever seen that show, Hoarders? It's a little bit fascinating if you've watched it and 
It's a whole lot horrifying. And it chronicles the mental illness that is associated with accumulating so much stuff that eventually you're unable to function even in your own house. And there was one episode that was so sad because they found the owner's dead body under all of this stuff that had accumulated in her house. No one had discovered she had even died because they could not get into her house and find out what had happened to her. Now, James is not talking about the mental illness of hoarding here. What he's talking about is the heart disease of hoarding wealth and possessions, of having so much more than you need that it sits idle. It's just deteriorating. It's just corroding. And James's description of riches that have rotted and deteriorated implies the act of accumulating wealth just to have lots of it. That's the only reason. It's mere existence selfishly supplies security or prestige or some sort of satisfaction because you have it. And it is the ultimate selfish existence to hoard wealth simply because you can. You don't need it. You just want it sitting around. And it's actually this hoarded wealth itself that will eventually become the evidence that speaks out against these unfaithful, wealthy believers. It reveals in a dramatic way that they've been very poor stewards of God's resources, the blessings that he's given them, the money and possessions they have hoarded through their own selfishness could have been used for God's purposes, could have been used to advance God's kingdom. Now, James uses the words last days here in these verses to remind his readers, and actually it's a great reminder to all of us as well, that all Christians are living in the time of great opportunity because it's the era preceding the Lord's return. And we have such a great opportunity to do kingdom work while we wait for the Lord's return. Our material resources while we wait can be used vigorously to advance his kingdom and not just used for our luxury and our entertainment. Look at Matthew six nineteen through 21 on your verse sheet. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. James, just like Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount here, is admonishing the rich, those who have so many resources, to put their heart exactly where it should be. They should put their money where their heart should be. Look at verse 4 with me now. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not 
resist you. So James's condemnation of the rich here is not just about their personal wrongdoing, how they've hoarded things for themselves alone. Now it is a sin that wrongs others. Um, they are getting rich and staying rich by cheating other people. Um, and just as the rotted riches and the corroded gold and silver were physical evidence against the sin of hoarding, these unpaid wages that are remaining in their bank accounts, in their vaults, in their homes, testify against them as well. It's evidence as well. In fact, James speaks here as if the wages themselves have a voice, if they're crying out against the unfaithful rich. In fact, one theologian characterized it as the wages saying, you're holding us against our will. We belong to someone else. For the wealthy to defer wages uh, and defer payment to their employees uh, simply so they could make more interest or simply so their bank account would stay plush and satisfy their greed, it directly defies God's laws. And these are Jewish converts. They had known the law well. They know what God says about this, and they are defying him anyway. Look at Leviticus 19.13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. It was expressly against God's law. It wasn't just a thought of theirs that they shouldn't do it. They knew that this was against their God to withhold labor's wages. And these wealthy employers have been busted. James tells them here. He tells them that their omnipotent God is not deaf. Their omnipotent God is not blind. He knows what they're doing. He's heard the cries of the workers they've cheated. He sees the injustice of the sin that that has been committed by these selfish, rich, believing employers. And James warns them, there may be no one else on earth who's willing to stand up for these oppressed workers, but their God is. Their God will stand up for the oppressed. And James finishes his warning here to the rich with a serious condemnation of the way they live. This is lifestyles of the rich and famous, and he sees it. It is in stark contrast the way they are living to those they have cheated of just that little bit of daily wages. They've lived in full-blown luxury. They have lived in excessive self-indulgence. Now, the Greek word that James uses here for self-indulgence was uh, pretty interesting to me. It means wanton pleasure, wanton pleasure. And that really painted a different picture for me. I don't know about you, but I've considered self-indulgence Maybe when I ate a dessert that I probably didn't need to be eating, or I thought about self-indulgence like, you know, I spent a little bit more on that item than I'd planned to, but I deserved it. I'm going to indulge myself. That's not what James is describing here as he holds up this wrong way sign to his wealthy readers. He is describing a lifestyle that is so filled with excess extravagance that it's nothing but waste. It is greediness to the nth degree that breaks all boundaries of conscience and self-control. It crosses a line. 
it crosses a line, and the end result of crossing that line, James says, is pretty tragic. He says it's actually murder. It's actually murder because laborers who are employed by the wealthy are not doing it for self-satisfaction or to stay busy. They're working for food and shelter every single day. They need those wages. It was serious in James's day for day laborers not to be paid. It meant their very lives were threatened. And even beyond abusing these laborers who wealthy employers were putting at risk, James is also condemning those who would do anything, even commit murder to protect their wealth. His wrong way sign reminds us that lives that are characterized by excess extravagance that cross a line of moral obedience often lead to unhealthy and sinful choices. Beware. Beware. Now, you know, when we think about these verses in light of our own lives today, James's strong words to his wealthy first century believers, I think may be easy to brush off uh, as not applicable to the lives that we live today. Maybe we don't have that kind of wealth. I'm sure many of us in this room don't have that kind of wealth. And maybe if we do have that, that kind of wealth, we manage it faithfully. We give our resources to the to the kingdom causes. But I think because this is a very important warning in James's book, it would be wise, regardless of the numbers in our bank account, for us to um, take seriously James's warnings as it result as it relates to money. And one of the reasons I believe that is because we live in a prosperous culture. We live in a prosperous time in our country. Uh, we live in a culture that highly values wealth and possessions and money. And you know, really the truth is if you look around the world today, Everyone in our country lives better than 80% of the rest of the world. And even what we consider poverty in this country as hard and as sad and devastating as it is, it is enviable. The poverty level in our country is enviable in most third world countries where there are no safety nets. There are no homeless shelters, no school lunches, no government assistance or food banks. So... Our response, uh, it would be wise for us to take James's warning here seriously. Now, we don't ever have to have guilt for what we have. Our God is um, blesses us in so many ways. But instead of guilt, we need another G word. We need to guard. We need to guard ourselves against putting our money and possessions in the place of our life where only God should be. We need to guard against putting money and possession on the throne of our life so that we worship them and we bow down to them and we do everything we can to retain them. We should resist the temptation, all of us should, to make money a source of security and comfort and control or even pride. 
in our lives rather than simply trusting God for all of our needs. And in the economic downturn that we've experienced recently, that's hard not to take security in whether we've kept our job or whether our bank account, our investment account is still doing well. Um, But we need to be trusting God with those instead of putting the numbers in our bank account up as our security. And we should heed James's wrong way sign when it comes to excess and indulgence in our lives because we're probably all guilty of it in some form or fashion, aren't we? Um, I don't have, I live in an older home, so I don't have a big closet, but I can tell you right now, um, and as I've been working on this, I've really tried to uh, look around my house and look at things, but my little closet is crammed with clothes I never wear. I don't know about you, but I wear five things over and over again, and the rest of my closet just sits there. Um, And here is a big confession I discovered last week as I was kind of thinking towards Thanksgiving. I have eight pie plates, eight pie plates, who needs eight pie? I don't even bake. I don't even cook, really. I mean, who needs eight pie plates? It's a small thing, but it was such an example to me of areas that I have abundance and excess of things I have no need for. James's warning is a call for us to examine our hearts, really, isn't it? Uh, that's what it's about. Who, what do we trust in? Uh, our money? Or our God? What do we really need when it comes down to our possession? What's going to rot and rust and tarnish because of our excesses? Um, we never have to feel guilty, feel guilty for the blessing of a generous God. Instead, let's just put our energy not into guilt, but in, put our energy into avoiding selfish indulgent and unnecessary excess so that we can put those extra resources into God's kingdom, honoring him, giving him glory instead of our own luxury and extravagance. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Let's see, let's watch as James switches gears here. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You may also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James does switch gears here. He switches gears here from his stern final warning to those believers that are coloring outside the lines with their money to an exhortation or a strong encouragement on how to live um, as these believers face trial. They're, They're getting restless because life is hard. People around them are hard. They're suffering and being persecuted. And he starts with a phrase here that always makes me groan. It just makes me groan whenever someone um, says it to me. Be patient. Be patient. It is my least favorite pastime. The Greek words that James uses here for his encouragement to be patient mean think long. 
Have a long fuse, not a short one. Be forbearing, be long-suffering. In other words, focus on the final lap, not all those laps in between. I was a labor and delivery nurse years ago, and whenever I would labor a patient that was in the active stage of labor, which means that they're having one pretty uh, intense contraction right on uh, top of another, um, they would begin to get panicked and just think, it's another contraction. I didn't have time to breathe or relax or recuperate before I have another contraction. So um, my job, uh, along with other things as a labor and delivery nurse, was to really work hard to get them to breathe and relax and maybe take a little bit of medicine, but I would also work hard to get them to refocus their thoughts, not just on that next contraction is coming, but let's think about tomorrow. Let's think, you're going to be holding that baby. What's the out, what, what are you going to take your baby home in? What's it going to look like when you go home and introduce that baby to their siblings? Uh, you know, your role, how it helped if you could get them to take their thoughts off their immediate discomfort and get their mind on that glorious final outcome of holding that baby. And James is actually doing the same thing here. Um, He wants his readers to focus on the final lap, not all of those hard things in, in between and their final lap to focus on is the coming of the Lord. It's his thrive strategy for them under hardship. It's his survival strategy for them as they impatiently endure, as they patiently endure the injustices that they may be suffering as believers. And they may be suffering under um, the hand of some of these wealthy, unfaithful believers. But they're Cries have been heard. He knows that. Um, The Lord is not deaf. And so now James says, your thrive strategy is to endure until the Lord comes. And the kind of patience that um, James really pictures for them here is of that farmer waiting for the rains and ultimately for the crops they produce. It's such a good metaphor for us waiting because farmers know that their crops are worth waiting for, don't they? Uh, It's why they persevere through plowing and planting and weeding and harvesting. You know, none of that is easy. None of it uh, is fun. It's all back-breaking, grueling work for the most part. But James wants his readers to stand firm and steady, just like a farmer stands firm and steady behind a plow, just like a farmer steadily plants his field year after year, then weeds it and harvests it because Just like a farmer's crops are worth waiting for, Christ's return is the ultimate, the ultimate reward worth waiting for. And his encouragement to be firm, to stand patiently and steady, even as they endure suffering, is the exact opposite of the lifestyle that he was admonishing with the wealthy, unfaithful believers. Because these wealthy, unfaithful believers he's been admonishing, 
They were living a life of instant gratification, weren't they? They were using their wealth and their money to take care of any suffering they might have in their life. They had plenty of food. They had great houses. They were able to procure anything they needed. But for his suffering readers, James is negating that same instant gratification lifestyle. His, their reward for living in patient endurance isn't going to come in the day they're suffering. Their reward will finally come when Christ returns for them and they are at his judgment seat. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Instead of instant gratification, those who patiently endure their suffering are going to experience eternal gratification. Eternal gratification when they meet Jesus face to face. And one of the things I loved about this passage that James described here is the picture of Christ as a judge standing at the door of his courtroom waiting to open the doors of his court so that he can, we can participate in this judgment day with him he, where he's handing out rewards that are well-deserved for those who have waited patiently for eternal gratification. But James is also aware, as he tells them here, that being patient and focused on that last lap of their journey as they suffer but wait to meet Jesus takes an emotional toll. It's not easy, is it? Uh, But James encourages his readers who are under that stress of suffering and persecution to avoid bitterness because that may come as they wait. To avoid blaming one another because that might occur as well. And most certainly they are never to take Jesus's place as judge no matter how stressed out they are by their suffering. Um, His visual of Jesus standing at the courtroom door reminds all of us, none of us has been given a gavel or robe, have we? We are all subject to Jesus, who alone is our judge. A word I hear frequently these days is hangry. Have y'all heard that word, hangry? It's that... um, Uh, It means becoming irritable and angry when we are hungry because our blood sugar drops. What James is really cautioning and encouraging his readers to overcome here is uh, stress anger. I think we could make up a new word, strangry. We could call it strangry. Um, It's not our blood sugar that drops. It's our stress level and our fatigue from stress that rises and makes us all irritable and bitter. James wisely exhorts his faithful believers to be on the lookout for those bumps in the road that are when they're exhausted by life struggles and avoid the temptation to be strangry, to be stress anger. Because when they become anger, angry through stress and fatigue, that's when they're going to be prone to judging others and finger pointing instead of waiting patiently for the Lord. Okay, let's look at verse 10 together. 
As an example of uh, suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, what James is asking them to do here is remain solid and firm and steadfast, standing together as the body of Christ in the face of persecution and suffering. And it's not something that he's just thought up for them. It's not new. God's people have been doing it in the past. And he gives them examples that these Jewish Christians would certainly know. He gives them the example of God's prophets who knew what it meant to be patient while they endured suffering as they waited for God to accomplish his purposes. People like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah all the prophets that waited for God to accomplish his purposes. And while they waited, they were persecuted. And Job, he brings up Job, who endured remarkable trials and was blessed by God for his persevering faith. And he brings up Job because um, James understands that God always has a purpose for suffering. He always has a purpose for suffering, just as he did with Job's life. Job's suffering had a purpose in God's economy. And James's point here that he wants to make for his reader is that the wise, those who are exemplified by the prophets and by Job, stand steadfast in their faith, even in the midst of their suffering. They do that because they know God. They cling to God, even when injustice makes life so hard. And Job is also such an example to them of God's character of mercy um, because jo- the Lord rewards Job, doesn't he? At the end of all his suffering, of his, but for his steadfast faith, he restores to him his property and his family. Look at Job 42. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Now Job saw his fortunes restored in this life. But James's readers have to focus on maybe not having their fortunes restored in this life, but focus on the guarantee that their reward for patient endurance is going to come. It is going to come, and certainly it's going to come when Christ returns. Look at 2 Timothy 4.7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. So James's encouragement, his strong exhortation to these restless suffering believers um, is that all the trials and all the struggling of waiting can be overcome. They can be overcome, but they will only be overcome if our hearts are gripped by the truth that Jesus is coming back for us. The truth that Jesus is coming back for us. When our hearts 
are firmly set on that truth, we will overcome the sin of grumbling and blaming. When our hearts are gripped by the truth that he really is coming, we will overcome reacting to injustice as the world reacts, and we will live out the truth that the Lord's character and his purpose will prevail in all our suffering. Let's look at that final verse together. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You know, I think everybody in this room could tell a story about a time they have been impatient in their life. I certainly could tell stories about my impatience almost every single day. Uh, One of my sons is an attorney, and he had his patience tested by an airline a couple of years ago. Uh, I think we all have airline stories too, don't we? Um, He was flying to a client negotiation, and he boarded the plane and gate-checked his big briefcase of legal documents. But before long, after they were sitting on the plane ready to go, of course, there was a mechanical problem. So they called everyone to deboard the plane. But the airline would not give back their gate-checked luggage. Um, And then for the next eight hours, it's a pretty remarkable story. For the next eight hours, they moved this plane load of passengers to four different gates before they finally canceled the flight altogether. Um, And they still had everyone's gate checked luggage. And at every gate, my son asked for his bag to be returned because he'd already missed his meeting. He didn't need to fly anymore. He just needed his bag back so he could leave the airport. And finally, at the fourth gate they were moved to, there was an elderly woman that he had helped navigate uh, DFW Airport um, uh, through these four gates because she was a little confused. And so he'd helped her get to every gate. And so at the fourth gate, she finally stood up in the middle of the boarding area and yelled, just give this young man his bag back. Um, and they finally did. They finally did. It took the little old lady with the walker to get his bag back. Now, I doubt that this elderly woman was in the habit of screaming at airline employees or using the language that I think she used to get his bag back. But her impatience had gotten the best of her and words flew out of her mouth that I'm sure she wasn't used to speaking. And that's James's exact point here. Um, he's concerned for his readers. He's concerned that their impatience with their suffering will get the best of them. And that they, as a people, as a group of believers, are going to let words fly out of their mouth that are better left unsaid. His encouragement to them here is don't do it. Don't fall into swearing or improper oaths that invoke the name of the Lord as you endure suffering. Do not let words fly out of your mouth in times of stress 
that you would never speak otherwise. Because it is true, isn't it? In times of stress, we lose our self-control, don't we? And say things that are better left unsaid. We may abuse the Lord's name or appeal to heaven as a figure of speech to confirm the seriousness or the weight of what we're saying. It's interesting. I've heard more political figures recently saying on the television uh, things like, in God's name or for the love of God, just to make their words more weighty. That is so inappropriate. James strongly encouraged his readers Not only is it inappropriate, it's not necessary. As believers, their mere words of yes and no are as trustworthy as a signed legal document. As believers, we should always truly mean what we say and not resort to casually or even frivolously abusing the Lord's name or his dwelling place for more emphasis. Look at what Jesus says about this in the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew 5:33. And again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. As believers, our simple yes and no should be our only pledge. Now, James's words of encouragement here as we finish up our verses, um, I think should encourage us as well today. I've been convicted that what I need to do is write out that sentence, be patient until the Lord comes, and just keep it everywhere in my life because this divine knowledge of the future of Jesus' return is actually a principle that should guide my life every single day, in every way. It should remind me to stand steadfast in the midst of suffering and hardship because I know the end of the story. I know the end of my story. And during trials and persecution and hardship, I can take comfort in the Lord's purpose and his character, just like the prophets did, just like Job did. The Lord has purpose in any and all of our suffering. My pain is not wasted. And just like Job, I will see his mercy. So what do we do when life is hard? And it is hard frequently, isn't it? According to James, we play the long game. We focus on that final lap that we know is coming. Focus on the final destination and don't pay any attention to the bumps in the road, not on our suffering, but on his return. And James, I think, says it better than any of the rest of us could. He says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's what we do when life is hard. Look at Revelation twenty-two twelve with me. Behold, I am coming soon. Those are Jesus' own words. Pray with me. Father, you are so good and gracious to remind us of the truth of our future. And the truth of our future is knowledge that I hope will shape each and every one of us every minute of every day. Father, I thank you for these women that love you, 
love each other and love your word. I pray your blessings and your favor and your grace and mercy on each one of us as we ponder and think about the truth of our Lord Jesus' return. Um, We are grateful. We are grateful for that knowledge and the truth that it brings to us. And I pray this in the name of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.